Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Joseph Breyer, welcome back to San Francisco. You. You're a San Francisco native and a proud graduate of Lowell High School. I assume you did very well there. <laughs> Uh, you have now written two books, uh, if my Amazon search is correct, uh, since uh, as a sitting justice of the Supreme Court. Uh, and I guess my first question is, uh, why do you view it as important uh, to write a book for a general audience as a sitting Supreme Court justice? Before I answer this question, uh, I want to thank you for inviting me. I want to thank the Chancellor and the Dean. I want to thank the Chief Justice for coming. Justice Grodin is here. The judges are here. Uh, we have uh, the faculty and the students, and it's really nice for me that everybody came. And it's nice being back in San Francisco, where I'm really here because it's my brother's birthday. Oh. <laughs> and, and, and congratulations and, to him. Right, right, right. And, uh, uh, and, and this is your younger brother. Uh, that's, don't discuss that. <laughs> I won't the, the, uh, uh, I mean, I have written several books. Yes. And, uh, the, but before I wrote these two, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll get to your question. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> that by chance, I wrote a book on regulation. Right. And that's academic. not for sale. Not for right. sale. Right. Uh, but uh, an L.A. Times uh, uh, reviewer got a hold of this book for some reason. It was about regu- economic regulation. Uh, and here, he, somehow in popular press, you know, the L.A. Times is a good newspaper, he wrote a review. Hmm. It's the following. It's... It starts off by saying, in Alice in Wonderland, Alice comes out of the pool of tears with the dormouse, and uh, the dormouse sits on a mushroom or something and starts reading Hume's History of England. Well, why are you reading that, says Alice? Well, because the dormouse says, uh, we're all wet, and this is the driest thing I know. That was before Breyer wrote this book. I, I wrote these other two to prove that wasn't necessary. So okay, great. Because I, I, I want to reach a general audience. Why? Well, the serious and truthful reason uh, is because I think we're all, I mean, the judges understand this, we're all living in a world where people are pretty cynical about government. And they they have some cause in in some instances, but if they get too cynical, they won't have a government. Because the democracy depends on their participation. So what can we in government do about that? Not too much. But they particularly about the court. I mean, you know, the court, we have nine, at least you have some elections. I'm not advocating the election. But, I'm saying, <laughs> but, the, but the, the, the fact is, we, what I say about our Supreme Court of the United States, nine unelected people. See, and uh, they're up there sometimes striking down laws of an elected body. And uh, we also do things that are pretty unpopular. And there's reason. The, the Constitution protects the least popular uh, as much as the most. So obviously sometimes it'll be unpopular. And by the way, we're human beings. That's very hard for people to accept. But because we're human beings, we can make mistakes. And somebody's making a mistake when I dissent. <laughs> I know they think it's me. All right, so, so, but there we are. So, so why, why should people in this somewhat cynical world accept an independent judiciary, not elected, unpopular, and sometimes quite possibly wrong. Now, that's an important question. Sometimes popular, depending on the outcome. Yeah, but you know, Hamilton said that. Hamilton says uh, the reason not to give this power of judicial review to Congress 
He says it's because uh, uh, this constitution is, is really there to protect the unpopular as well as the popular. Now, if it were just the popular, that he says, in, I'm paraphrasing and exaggerating, but basically he says in number 78, Federalist, he says, you know, uh, Congress, they know popular. I mean, believe me, they know it. And, and uh, if they didn't know it, they wouldn't be in the jobs they're in. But can we trust them to strike down a law, which is very popular, when it's unconstitutional and unpopular to strike it down? He says, I'm not too sure about that one. And therefore, we'll take these independent judges. Right. Now, and do you see it, yourself as engaging or part of the debate yes, that's going on with the Tea Party and with oh, other that's a different uh, factions? No, I mean, you're saying the basic... Well, not the Tea Party specifically, no. but you're part of that public discourse. Uh, but wait, wait, final sentence on that, of why then write this. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a following article of faith. That, that if I can explain to people what it is we do and why we're there and how long it's taken Americans to be willing to do what courts say and why that's always a chancy proposition. If I can get all that down on paper in an interesting way, then I've done my bit to help. I can't mm-hmm. say I persuade people or not, right. but that's sort of doing my bit. And, and that's, that's actually the origin of the books. Mm-hmm. And then you say, well, do I have an agenda here taking on different... Not a specific agenda, but part of the public discourse, part of the debate, part of the constitutional uh, discourse. You're, you're, certainly one of your views is that you want high school students, college students to be yeah. engaged citizens. Yeah. Uh, and there are a lot of factions and, and voices out there trying to get them engaged in different ways. Yeah, so you're, you're yeah, part yeah. of the, that, the, that the discourse. The answer is yes. The answer is yes in the sense that I try to pick two co- questions that they might not have put in quite the way that I put it, but they, they have these questions, most people. Uh, and the first question they don't think about. They just accept it, which is, which is the extraordinary thing. And that is why do what the court says. You see, that, that's not always been true in American history. I mean, the Cherokee Indians are evicted. As you know, you've really read that. Yeah. He's really read this book. He has green markers. This is a very valuable man, and we have to say. That. But um, the, as, as he knows, there have been times when people, uh, the Cherokees are all evicted from their uh, land, and the Supreme Court says, it's yours. It was obviously theirs. And uh, President Andrew Jackson says, uh, John Marshall made his decision, now let him enforce it. And he sends troops not to enforce the law, but to evict the Indians. And they are. They're sent on the Trail of Tears to Oklahoma. And that's changed gradually over time. And I want people to ask themselves questions about that. I put the question this way, uh, and that's uh, the question Hamilton didn't ask, uh, which is uh, Shakespeare asked it. He has Owen Glendower, who's a Welshman in Henry IV. Uh, In Shakespeare, all the Welshmen are mystics. So this mystic Owen Glendower comes in and says, I can summon spirits from the vasty deep. And Glendower uh, uh, talks to Hotspur, the practical Englishman, who replies, well, so can I. He says, so can any man. But will they come when you do call for them? You see? And that's the question about the courts, which is there. And uh, we better talk about it. The second question is the one you're driving, and I know mm-hmm. I'm just being so difficult. I'm <laughs> That's okay. But the, the, the second question. My, my students avoid my questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe not well, quite as well. But, no, no, uh, no. no, no. <laughs> but the, the, the second question is this. I say, I know what you're thinking uh, when we have a controversial decision. And you're thinking really what judges are 
are junior varsity politicians. That's what you think. And uh, I want to, I can tell you all I want, you know, 40% of our cases are uh, unanimous. And I can say the five fours are about 20%, and it's not always the same five and not always the same four, even in controversial cases. But you're still thinking there are an awful lot of controversial ones which do seem to line up the five, four, same five, same four. And I say, okay, that's true. So, so why is that? And, and there I have to go into what you are very interested in and started off this question. Uh, people have different basic views uh, in, that show up in certain areas uh, about interpreting those big voids in the Constitution. The word liberty doesn't explain itself, as you well know. The word the freedom of speech doesn't quite say what the limits are. And so how do we decide privacy versus free speech, etc.? And why does there tend to be a a certain tendency for views of different people to congregate in certain ways? Why? And I I have to go into that, Mm -hmm. and I want to say enough about that so people will see how we decide things, at least through my eyes. You can't tell them. Mm-hmm. I think you have to show them. And, and uh, by reading enough examples, which I've tried to put in, you know, I, mm-hmm. I'm hoping uh, to communicate something. And of course, not surprisingly, mm-hmm. looking back over the decisions I've written, I've tended to see patterns. I don't think it's right. totally random. And uh, I, I, I want them to see of course, I think I'm right. That's not surprising. Right. Uh, and uh, I want them to see why I think that right. and why I don't have some other view. And it's not that the other views are so idiotic or wrong. They're not. They're, 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 they're there for reasons. And, and I want them to see that, too. But, so. there, but there are cases um, <clears throat> that nobody, I think, really believes that the court is political the way Congress is political, no, certainly. Uh, but there are cases that uh, it appears that some of the justices might be operating in an inconsistent way with their own precedent, uh, their own jurisprudence. So, for example, uh, Citizens United uh, was a little bit more expansive than some of the justices who joined the majority in Citizens United might otherwise have been thought to go. Uh, Similarly, in the Heller case, uh, Judge Richard Posner and and Judge J. Harvey Wilkinson uh, criticized the majority opinion in the Heller Second Amendment case uh, for being essentially substantive due process in the Second Amendment. And so there is, I think, the perception among uh, at least constitutional law students and some constitutional scholars that although justices may begin with a particular point of view, that in certain cases they might actually bend a little bit uh, in order to get an outcome uh, that seems to be inconsistent with their jurisprudence. Um, not, not in the first. I, I, think, I think in Citizens United, the, the five, the three of the five, who were in the majority. I was in dissent. Right. I joined John sure. Stevens' dissent. But three in the five have consistently taken the view that you cannot regulate uh, campaign finance except for disclosure. Mm-hmm. So the, the other two were new appointments. And, and so I don't think they're being inconsistent with what they've said in the past. And it's not such an easy issue because you have the people on one side you know, who think, let's not get into... You say, well, we're regulating money. But even I, who've been on the other side, I say, well, no, really. Uh, you try speaking politically in the United States of America and not have money. Uh, you have to finance your message. And uh, so, therefore, there is a big uh, f- uh, First Amendment issue. Mm-hmm. And some people, and, and this is written in, uh, in um, uh, Buckley, so you can't 
say to some people, namely wealthy people, let's say, you have less speech in order to safeguard or give other people more speech. And Learned Hand said that. He said, don't get into that business. Don't get into the business of saying you speak less so others can speak more. I've taken the other side. I don't want Mm -hmm. to convince you of the rightness of that side. Uh, uh, The the other side basically says uh, you have to allow Congress to impose regulation on those who have vast financial capability in order to give an opportunity to those who have less of that ability to get their voices heard in the democratic debate. Now, all I want to say is there are two sides to that argument. And, uh, there, and I, I'm tempted, of course, to say there's my side and the wrong side. But that isn't, that, that isn't necessarily so. Like most of these arguments, they're, they're, they're pretty tough. Now, on Heller and the gun case, I agreed with John Stevens in dissent. Mm-hmm. And I believed that John Stevens had a better view of the history. And you need history on that one. Because the issue is, what's the history of the Second Amendment and what's it there for? And you don't know what it's there for unless you read the history. But others in the majority had a different view of that history. Uh, you can't say they're wrong to appeal to history. We appeal to history. And, you, you, you disagree uh, you, with Posner and Wilkinson? Well, I don't disagree. I disagree with the majority. I was right. in dissent. Right. No. All, all I'm saying is that it's one view that they're not being consistent with the history, which was mm. my view. But there's another view, right. which is that they are being consistent with the history. And that's their view. And I'm not sure I would take those two cases and say these are obvious examples of uh, where they're not being consistent with themselves. They think they're being consistent with themselves. Just as, uh, when, again, I say they because they were the majority, I was in the dissent. And what I'm trying to do is to, as you know, but many people don't, that we're, our basic job is, is applying a document that sets boundaries. And boundaries include within the boundary a vast area where the public, the people, through their elected representatives, make their own decisions about what kind of city, state, country to have. But those boundaries at the boundary are sometimes tough to define. Is abortion in or out? Uh, are the guns, the handguns, in or out? And, uh, you know, I used to listen when I, I did grow up here. And when I grew up, no, almost nobody knows this, there was a great radio program called Sergeant Preston of the Yukon, I think. <laughs> like four people remember what a great program that was. <laughs> but, 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 the thing I took away from that, he was always at the boundary. You know, it was freezing cold. He <laughs> was up there and, and uh, God. I thought life at the boundary is tough. Now, that isn't such a bad metaphor. Now, because uh, that's, it's, uh, there's something to be said usually on both sides of these. Now, a case that uh, many people point to as pushing the limits of that boundary, of course, is Bush versus Gore. Ah, yeah, I thought you, you were going to bring up you, that one. Well, right well, well I, I, yeah. I was working my way yeah. to it. And, and, you do, and you write about it, and you describe Bush versus Gore as a yeah. self-inflicted wound. Uh, and I was wondering if you could, uh, Justice Ginsburg was here this past September, uh, and she visited my constitutional law class, and she was asked, is there any case uh, during her time on the court that she wished the court uh, had ducked or avoided or not decided? And she smiled and said, uh, Bush versus Gore. Um, I think you agree with that position, but... Is that what? first on my list? I don't know. The, 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 I was in the dissent. I right. did say I thought the court shouldn't have granted the case. 
I did say they should dismiss it now that they've granted it. Mm-hmm. And I said if they're going to decide it, they ought to decide it to let the election go forward, to get the count go forward in Florida. So that was my view. I was in the dissent. Mm-hmm. That's right. Now, and, what, what was it like at the court? It was stressful. Weekend it was very stressful. Yeah. <laughs> it was, actually. <laughs> Uh, Jeffrey Tubin, in uh, his book The Nine, wrote that Justice Souter uh, was close to resigning uh, over Bush versus Gore. Was it that contentious? And, and, and I, I have no idea what he was thinking there. I mean, I, I had no indication of that. But, but uh, the, the uh, discussion, you know, the discussion, people don't shout at each other. Mm-hmm. But there were quite a few people understood the seriousness of, and the unusual importance of that of, of, of that question. Uh, I, I heard Senator Reed, and this is why I put it in, in the book. I, I heard him say, and it's it's interesting. He was he said the most remarkable feature of, of that case uh, is something that's very rarely remarked, and that is, despite the uh, in fact, it's a perfect illustration in my opinion, and perhaps his. Important? Of course. Unpopular? With at least half the country. Wrong? I thought so. But the others didn't. Now, a lot of people think it's wrong. A lot of people think it's unpopular. And it's certainly important. But what Reed said is not often remarked, is despite that, people did follow it. Mm -hmm. There were not riots. There were not killings in the street. There were no machine guns, and there were no stones and bricks and so forth uh, thrown with really intent to injure. So, in fact, Vice President Gore went on TV to say, uh, "It's it's that uh, right, right, right." Now he says that's a national treasure. Yeah, that's a national treasure. Now, when I'm talking to an audience and I say there were no riots, uh, depending on the audience. I know that there is a percentage of people who are thinking, and too bad there weren't. <laughs> and, and I talk to them and say, before you decide that, go turn on the television set and look at what happens in countries where people choose to decide, resolve their major differences uh, on the street uh, with guns uh, instead of in a courtroom. And, and then you'll see and, and you'll see why when you think about that, uh, that this is a national treasure. So, so we who are working the law, which includes every single one of you, you see, should have an answer to a question I get. I, the last time I got it was a woman who was Chief Justice of Ghana. And she's in my office. And she's trying to, they're trying in Ghana to produce a more democratic society and to protect basic human rights. And she says this question, the same I started with. Why do people do what you say? And you simply cannot answer that question without going back into a little history. And we've had our ups and downs. We've had a civil war. We had slavery. We had uh, 80 years of, of legal segregation. We had all kinds of things in this country. But gradually, people have come in this area to produce what Senator Reid called a national treasure, where, where, I, where, where I agree. And this is a strong theme in the book, strong, the idea of the rule theme. of law, and yeah. you do a very nice job of developing that theme from the early 19th century to, to today. 
Uh, I guess a, a question that occurred to me as I was reading that section, and I think it was really compelling, but uh, are there times when civil disobedience and not obeying the rule of law, uh, certainly uh, Martin Luther King in the 1960s, uh, did that in a nonviolent way, and that Occupy uh, movement might be moving in that direction. Uh, certainly, even in a constitutional democracy uh, like, ourself, like ourselves, that there may come a time when the people say there are unjust laws that we should not follow. There could. But uh, think of even the, the interesting story there, I think, where Martin Luther King comes in, is really it's part of a big story. Uh, it's part of a story where I think courts get some credit. I think Brown versus Board of Education is really one of the key, de- probably the key decision, which explains in part why courts, because of the fairness of it. You know, I, I was uh, you you were maybe too young, but I mean I can remember the time before Brown. I was here, and even in San Francisco, even in San Francisco. You know, there was a kind of segregation that maybe wasn't there literally under the law, but it was there, and, uh, and in the South. All right, so, so, so the, the court said in Brown, the words equal protection of the law mean what they say. Of course you can't have this kind of system. And what happened the next year? Nothing. Mm-hmm. And the year after that? Nothing. And then we had Little Rock. And Little Rock, uh, a judge said, you will integrate that central high school. And the governor of the state of Arkansas said, no, we won't. I have the militia. And it wouldn't have been integrated uh, unless uh, Eisenhower, which he finally decided to do, after being advised, if you send troops to Arkansas, that's what Jimmy Burns told him, a former member of our court. He said, if you send troops to Arkansas, you're going to have to reoccupy the entire South. You'll have to have a second reconstruction. But Brownell said to to Eisenhower, you better do it. And he did it. And he put that 101st Airborne on the airplanes. The 101st Airborne, again, when yeah, I was that you was know very that interesting. The 101st, it's fascinating. Uh, right, now, they, they were heroes. Oh, right, I'll summarize. Yeah. They were heroes. They're on the airplane, and they get the children in the school. But then the school's closed. Right. All right? And then something happens, which is you begin to get into the Martin Luther King period, and you begin to, uh, uh, to see the Freedom Riders, and you begin to see the uh, Civil Rights Movement, and so forth. But I, uh, in my own mind, and uh, I see this as part of a major effort, and, and it's a major effort to do what? It's a major effort to take, since I'm a judge, I, I'm biased in this direction, but it's a central theme, the central idea of law and the Constitution that people are treated with equal respect. And uh, they are uh, trying to make that a reality. Well, I want to ask you about your methodology. In the book you write, the court should regard, this is your pragmatic jurisprudence uh, concept, and you write, the court should regard the Constitution as containing unwavering values that must be applied flexibly to ever-changing circumstances. That's what I think we do. And, that's yeah. the, the, and that, I think, encapsulates the pragmatic jurisprudence concept. I, I guess one question is, do you see that as an intellectual error of John Marshall's view that it is a Constitution we're expounding in McCulloch, and, and would you liken that to the idea of a living Constitution? Yeah. And, yes, I mean, the trouble with the words living constitution is they take on a kind of uh, a bumper sticker 
Um, not, right. There's nothing right. wrong with bumper stickers, but the, 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 um, it, it lends itself to parody. Right. So, but but uh, the, the, the same idea, it is a constitution we're expounding, that can lend itself to parody too, because it depends on tone of voice, and there's a phrase that takes its meaning from tone of voice. But it's right. all in the same thought. And, and the, you can say the same thing about what, I, what you just read that, that I said. You know, it, it sort of a, has a certain Fourth of July speech quality, uh, where, where you say, well, uh, we take permanent values and apply them to changing circumstances. But that is what we do. Mm-hmm. That is what we do. And you say, well, wh- what is it that you can, ha- where do you find help in doing that? I say, well, wh- one thing, I, I think you find help by, by looking to the Constitution and seeing what those values are. And, uh, and, and you'll just, they're written there, but m- everyone. So the value of yeah. equality in the 19th century is not limited to what people in 1868 thought equality meant, but in Craig B. Bourne and, and in the 21st century, equality means what we understand equality to mean. But it's the principle that you're modernizing. Is that a fair That's, summation? I think fair. Okay. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I'll give and you the opportunity to disagree right? later. There are other things. You wouldn't agree with Chief Justice Roberts' statement before the Senate Judiciary Committee that being a judge is merely calling balls and strikes, and it's just like being an umpire. Do I think that? Yeah, do you think that? I think as a trial judge, but not even the trial judge, really. I mean, uh, the the, 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 uh, appeals courts, less us. But the appeals courts have really two kinds of jobs. There's called the error correction job where you're applying pretty well-decided law to the facts, mm-hmm. uh, the witnesses. And there's also the, the uh, what I call the law-interpreting job. The law-interpreting job is maybe an umpire sometimes does the law-interpreting job, but really a law-interpreting job isn't that. It's you have a text in front of you, whether it's statutory or constitutional. And the text is tough, if you're in the Supreme Court, certainly, mm-hmm. because it isn't clear how it applies. And, and your job is to figure that out. And, and here again, if you want to see the differences, it seems to me when you have some words there, you, you see them all the time. And you, that's the, why you have these cases. You want to put them to the students, say, what do you think? And they're, and they're tough. You, you have the text, you read it. You have the uh, history. Sometimes you look to the tradition. Habeas corpus has a big tradition. You read the precedent. Uh, you look to the purpose. Somebody had a purpose in writing those letters, uh, in those words. Mm-hmm. And uh, you look to consequences. Uh, not any old consequence, but consequence that's relevant to the particular provision in front of you. If you decide this way, does it further the purpose or does it hinder the purpose and so forth. All right, so some judges say you're better off to... Try to, try to limit yourself to text, history, tradition, and precedent. And Beware some, of... And some oh, yeah, precedent. Some, uh, well, the precedent, but the precedent usually, at least if you're in my court, mm-hmm. uh, the precedent doesn't usually answer the question. See, so I'll, I'll say, well, look, look to consequence and look to purpose. And be, but I'm not exclusively, of course, you have to look to text. I mean, if it says... Fish, you know, that doesn't mean uh, a piece of celery or something. I mean, right. you know, it's, it, it's, it's not. You, you can't do anything you want with the words. You're limited by those words. And, and so you're going to look to the text and history. You're going to look to the tradition and the precedent. 
but, but I just think they don't usually answer it. Sometimes they do, but, but, but they don't usually. And so you, I put a lot of weight on purpose and consequence. And others may say, that's going to be too subjective. I'm worried about that. Let's try to limit ourselves. And that's the nature, I think, of the fundamental argument that's going on now. And it isn't just going on in courts. It's going on in law schools. It's going on in law offices. It's going on wherever lawyers are involved in interpreting an instrument. And, and uh, that's why uh, it's important to, for, for the profession at least, to, to think these things through. And, and uh, uh, there we are. Well, let me ask you, methodologically, um, sometimes my students will say, it seems like judges and justices will reach a conclusion and reason backwards to write the premises to support that conclusion. And sometimes I'll say, well, isn't that not uh, incorrect? That, that in a sense, like the GPX case uh, that you have now before, you don't have to obviously speak to that case specifically, but one has an intuitive reaction to the idea of whether it's constitutional for the police to follow the justices uh, when they leave their uh, chambers uh, and just follow them without a warrant or uh, any reasonable suspicion. And then you work from that, and then you say, well, what are the precedents? What is the history? What are the consequences say about that? Mm -hmm. But you sort of start with an intuition. And, and Judge Alvin Rubin uh, of the Old Fifth Circuit uh, once said, I, I very often have a belief about how a case should turn out, and then it doesn't write. Mm -hmm. And it's because he has an intuition, and then he tries to write it, and it doesn't write. And I wonder if That's that right. resonates with you. Yes. But I'll put it this way particularly in, in, in a court like ours, which is dealing, you know, we're only taking cases where, almost only, where, where, where good judges have come to different conclusions on the same question. So, so, so what do I actually think mentally goes on? And I bet it happens in lots of courts. I bet it happens in businesses. I bet it happens when people have to make practical decisions. Right, I, I pick up that blue brief, uh, and uh, that's the petitioner's brief. And I'll read the question. Most of the time when I read the question, I already think I know the answer. Then I read the brief. I said, pretty good. Then I read the red brief. That's the respondents. I said, oh, hmm. <laughs> Not so fast. <laughs> you see, and so what's going on? And I always have a view. The, 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 but the view is open. An open mind is not a viewless mind. An open mind is a mind very often with a view, but it, the person is honestly subject to change. And, and of course you have intuitions. Of course you do. It's, it's much more like the old joke. You know the joke where the judge is sitting there and, and the uh, uh, plaintiff's lawyer makes a good argument and the judge says, right, absolutely right. And the defense lawyer says, you haven't heard me, your honor. Is All right. He makes his argument and he looks at him and says, you're right. You're absolutely right. And the plaintiff's lawyer gets up and says, Judge, first you said, I'm absolutely right. And now you say, he's absolutely right. We can't both be absolutely right. And the judge says, you're right. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, you see, the it right. is like that. It is like that. And, and, and so it's, uh, you're absolutely right about the intuition. And, 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 well, but he is. Uh, but, but you're subject to change. You see, the, the, the point is, eventually... You're going to have to sit down, and you've got to figure out which set of, of arguments, which uh, arguments, there are dozens of arguments, and you have to figure out where you are, where they lead you, 
And what set or others that you have are actually what convinces you. Because when you write an opinion, which I really want my law clerks to understand, and it makes it harder for them. They're, they're not in the business, and I'm not in the business, of trying to figure out something that's going to be a proof by Archimedean logic or some Aristotelian logic. I mean, that isn't what law is like. The best I can do in an opinion is to give my reasons. And if it's a good opinion, those really are my reasons. And then others will come along and say, oh, I can't believe he thinks that. Okay, that's their right. That's the purpose of an opinion, to be as transparent as possible as to what your reasons really are and let others come in and criticize, fine. And those criticisms may come back to us in some other case. Very well, learn from them. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not a closed secret system. It's a, it's a system based on reason, yes, but it's not computer. And uh, does that elaborate mm-hmm. yeah. on what you were yeah. saying? Now, I want to uh, get into a, a uh, slightly parallel area, and that's federalism. And, of course, the court just this week took a major uh, case uh, involving congressional authority. Can't ask you about that. Uh, but you do talk about uh, what is one of your most famous dissents in United States versus Lopez, which, if I'm correct, was your first term yeah, on, on the court. And, and in the book, uh, you talk about an idea that I hadn't seen before uh, that you call subsidiarity. subsidiarity. That's dangerous for me to use that word because okay. it's a European notion. Okay. Well, that, that, that's a separate uh, line of conversation. Yeah, that's true. But you, you, you define subsidiarity as subsidiarity insists that governmental power to deal with a particular kind of problem should rest in the hands of the smallest unit of government capable of dealing successfully with that kind of problem. So it's a idea that actually uh, resonates with the Federalist Papers and, sure. and talking about of course it um, you know, sort of Montesquieu's ideas about uh, the smallest political unit, uh, yet you also are the author of the dissent of Lopez, which would have found congressional power to regulate uh, guns in school zones. And no, so a, the, the reason I use that word is because it is a word in European law at the moment that tries to describe the relationship between the European Union Union in the member states. And because of that, they've struggled with the same kinds of problems. That's what's so interesting. Mm-hmm. They have the same kinds of problems, and they're looking to similar solutions. And the solution is, sure, it's an easy thing to say. It comes, I gather, uh, from what I've read out of medieval philosophy, that it's a good idea to keep hands and uh, power in small units. Uh, people in a community know their people. Uh, they know their problems. They know, uh, 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 and they're likely to get responses from the local official. And so you say, uh, let's keep in mind the fact that we're trying to solve problems at smaller levels and moving to the larger levels only when you really have to do that. But of course, in saying that, I've enunciated a principle that judges aren't so good at applying because most problems can be characterized in ways that may or may not be capable to try the environment. Well, we ought to be able, at the local level, to decide exactly what's going to go in the beach in Inverness. Ah, fine. But that's probably part of a bigger problem. And the bigger problem can be described as uh, how do we keep the oceans safe, or whatever, however you want to describe it. And something that happens in California here might have an impact somewhere else. 
and which level unit you judge, you operate with, is something that those who are elected to office and have an opportunity to call into people in hearings. You know, when I used to, when I worked in the Senate for a while uh, on the staff, I, I had a wonderful research tool that has been taken from me. It's called the telephone. You don't know what that is. That was the predecessor to a BlackBerry. uh, But you call people, and and you get views about about how to solve problems. So my view in Lopez is not what is the right answer at the level of dealing with the problem. The question is who, like most of our problems, which unit of government should be in charge of deciding what that level is? And of course, I argue pretty strongly there that for most things, it's Congress. Because they are dealing with the raw material out of which they will describe the nature of the problem, the level of generality at which they want to deal with it, and who should deal with it at that level of generality. And if you think that's ceding authority to the federal government, that isn't necessarily so. The one thing I learned in working in the Senate uh, for Senator Kennedy really was, I'll tell you, senators and members of Congress are local officials. I mean, you want to talk to Senator Kennedy, you better be from Massachusetts. You get right a leg up, okay? And, and you'll get in there before anybody else. I mean, I, I have a, one day, I'd rather like this, I had a small office and, and uh, I had some law books in there and I see a young woman who came in and she was reading through all my books. And I said, well, what are you doing? And, and she said, oh, I'm a, 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 she said, I, I just wanted to solve a problem and uh, I thought maybe you had some books in here that would be useful. And I, before I got annoyed at her, I thought, well, she might be a constituent. <laughs> and and the constituent. Sorry, that's a telephone. I hope everybody's turned off his cell phone. <laughs> we should have made an announcement. Yeah, yeah, there we go. But but but, but you, you see, senators and congressmen, members of Congress, they do respond. And so it, it, I try to explain that to people that they're responsive to their states. And if the people want to keep things at the local level, they know how to vote. And moreover, people don't know this either, particularly the 10th graders when they come, you probably do, that most law, you know this, <laughs> the Chief Justice of California knows this, believe me, <laughs> that almost all law in the United States is state law. That's why they're so busy. I mean, you say, look, uh, family law is state law. Business law is state law. Property law is state law. Uh, 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 tort law is state law. Criminal law is state law. Even the education, you know, I can go through area after area. Even the environment, which people think is federal, is mostly state. All right, so, so I, what number? I usually say, well, 95%, 97% is state. Then people say, well, the kids say, where do you get that number? I say, I made it up. But, but, the, <laughs> but, 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 but the point is, it's not so inaccurate. Now, now, do you see where I'm going? Right. But of course, yeah. the, the lesson of that uh, perspective is that it's within Congress's discretion whether to leave that law with the states. Yes. Uh, and so yes, to it some is extent, within their discretion. To use a legal term that, to some extent, you might even say it's a political question. No, uh, not a political to, question. Okay, so you would say that there is some review on the court. For yes, the Congress but there are certain right areas that the, that's what I, I actually think that the, I mean, there's several parts that you can break federalism into, but in the part about whether in this Constitution there is a delegation of the power to the Congress to make that decision, I've taken the view, which I did in Lopez, that that's pretty thorough. Mm -hmm. That's pretty thorough. Uh, Now, there are other parts of it. 
And there are other parts is what happens when Congress says nothing. There's something called the Dormant Commerce Clause, uh, which is a very interesting subject to those interested in federalism. And uh, the people interested in federalism are not necessarily so large in number, but they're a greater number than, than those interested in administrative law. And I have a chapter of that. Too. But the, 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 uh, the, the point is that, that, that I, I really think that this notion where subsidiarity or to call it try to get power to the states or the mm. smaller, where it really has a role that's not as glamorous as a case like Lopez, but important, mm-hmm. is very often interpreting a statute. Interpret a statute. For example, we had a case involving uh, the uh, rate setting, rate setting in, in uh, uh, telephone companies. Mm-hmm. And, and the question was whether the Federal Communications Commission had the power to do something. Well, you found in dissent there, I'm sorry to say, Justice Thomas and me. And, and we're taking the view, and I would take the view, uh, that the rate commissions have worked for many years. You have a California PUC, and it's done its job for many years. And don't start with an assumption, when it doesn't say it and doesn't require it, that the Congress has taken the traditional rate-setting power uh, for local utilities away from the states. A technical issue. Mm-hmm. But in answering this technical question through the meaning of a statute where federalism is involved, I'm trying to, let's call it, inform the answer with an understanding that this country is made up of states, of local units of government, and with a big country like ours, uh, that constitutional idea of keeping power with the states and the localities makes considerable sense. And it's an inherent check on federal power as yes, well, yes, that, uh, that's in right. aggregation. Absolutely. Now, now you uh, raise the issue, so I'll have to pursue it, uh, of using the word subsidiarity, uh, which is a European term. And, of course, there's a great debate about whether the Supreme Court should ever look at international concepts. So, for example, in Roper versus Simmons, the juvenile death penalty case, uh, Justice Kennedy cited international norms in finding that uh, inflicting the death penalty on, on minors was unconstitutional. Constitutional. Um, what's your view of, of relying on international authorities more generally? I, I think that there's a terrifically interesting debate, as you point out, which is pretty political, and it's of not of great importance. And I think there's another debate, uh, which uh, isn't very debatable. It concerns the same question, and it's of fabulous importance. And the one that isn't of such great importance is, well, should we as judges in a constitutional court sometimes refer to decisions made by other courts in other countries on similar subject matter? Now, on that one, I say yes. Why not? If it's relevant, I can read what I want. Mm -hmm. And if you have, which we've discovered, more and more people in other countries have, since the end of World War II, really, have more and more tried to develop democracies and protect human rights and use courts as instruments in, in, in that effort. Uh, that's happened more and more. Uh, well, uh, they have similar problems, too. As the So if a person with a job like mine and a constitution or a document, something like ours, uh, is facing a problem like ours, uh, reaches a decision, why don't I read it? I might learn something. Mm-hmm. Now, it's pretty hard to disagree with that. I mean, I know some people have disagreed with it, but I think you bring up the case. You know the case you brought up. It's a case involving reference to foreign law 
in a case that involved the death penalty. Well, it's a pretty controversial subject. Sure. And, there, and the other case people are upset about often is a case involving gay rights. Mm-hmm. All right? That's uh, Lawrence. Right. All right. So I say my wife is a psychologist, and uh, she's taught me there's a, uh, there's a phenomenon known as displacement, and that you're angry at A, so you blame B. So I say that's what's going on here. They're angry at the results of that case, and they're blaming mm. foreign law, which has nothing to do with it, really, or very, very little. But then there's an issue that's tremendously important. Because while the cases that you're talking about are going on, and we start counting the number of cases that are in the Supreme Court every year, where everyone would agree that foreign law, the law of a foreign country, or international law, is relevant. One year, I mean, we only take about 80 or 90, 80 cases, 80-some-odd cases, and, and we had, I counted nine. Three were Guantanamo, so put those to the side. But, but they go to the other six. They, they were, one, a plaintiff in Ecuador brings an antitrust case in New York. He's a vitamin distributor. He's suing a, a company that has its base, a manufacturer in Holland. Uh, and he says there's some connection to New York through a cartel. But, but wh- wh- why, is he br- why does he want to sue in New York? You think because it's vitamin, they raise the vitamin prices. He's so weak, he can't get to Holland, can't buy the vitamins. But, but the, no, it's because of treble damages. All right, so no, we have to answer that question. Can he do it or not? Well, to know the answer to that, you have to know something about European cartel law. You have to know something about, we had briefs in the case from, from Japan, from, 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 uh, from uh, Germany, from the EU authority. And they aren't the kind of brief just say, oh, we're for, we're against. They were very good, good rather, rather in-depth analyses of their own law which were relevant. You have trucks coming in from Mexico. They're governed by NAFTA. What's the relation of NAFTA? To a law passed by Congress, it seems to have a desire to keep out those trucks. And can the president override that? Well, it depends, but you have to know something about NAFTA. Or in Los Angeles, we had a, a company A wants to get information from company B. Uh, and no, we're not giving it to you. They go to the federal court to try to get it under discovery. Why? He says, because we want to give it to the European Cartel Authority, which, by the way, said we don't want it. But the, the uh, uh, you can, or, or you had another one. So, so the, uh, you right. have to know cartel law. Great case. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mrs. Altman who was here, I think, in Los Angeles again. Mm-hmm. And she wanted to get a hold of the Klimt paintings uh, that she said uh, were in the Austrian National Museum and had been taken by the Nazis from her, from her uncle, and she was the residuary legatee. And they met a, a defense there of sovereign immunity. And they, since they sell things now, the question was, where, where do you look to decide sovereign immunity? Do you look to current status of the museum, which was the defendant, or do you look to 1942 status or 43, the past? And I, I think just by chance we find it, uh, what seems to be a pretty good answer in a French case in uh, uh, the Court of Appeal in, in Paris, where the case is Christian Dior against ex-King Farouk. <laughs> so he, he didn't pay for his wife's dresses. And so Dior sued him. And uh, he says sovereign immunity. Mm. And the court says, no. He says, you're not King Farouk. You're ex-King Farouk. Get it? <laughs> All right. Very useful. Right. Now, now I, my, my point is I could go on on that, but I won't. I'll just say this. Look, Sosa, another one, the, the alien tort. I mean, it's all over the place. And it reflects the fact that commerce is international. And it reflects the fact 
that people all over the world are interested in human rights and they know instantly what's going on in one country or another and that to me means we have to be receptive to that or we can't do our job and that's just not a, 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 a divisive issue I mean b- people understand that we disagree about a lot of other things and, and to understand that, we have to be told it. I, I can't find those cases on my own. I mean, uh, the lawyers have to tell us. Mm-hmm. And the lawyers aren't going to know where to look unless they're trained in the law school. And they have to be trained in the law school, and that's happening more and more. And not in specialized cases. Uh, when I was a law student, you know, somebody might take a case in international law or something, sort of a specialized thing. No, it, it's part of, it's part of uh, all kinds of the most normal courses. Mm-hmm. And that's happening now. So, hey. so you see that yeah. circular chicken and egg. Right. Now you mentioned of. in that uh, both Guantanamo and human rights, and my colleagues will not yeah. forgive me if I don't raise the... Uh, specter of executive power uh, and where the court's role, uh, and you talk about it in the book, uh, the, the, the Guantanamo cases. Uh, could you talk a little bit about uh, the court's role in um, supervising, might be too strong a word, but uh, guarding the constitutional yeah, rights yeah. of those? That's, uh, a, that's, a, that's really interesting and, and difficult. So what I've done is, as you know, because you've really read this pretty thoroughly. And I'm recommending it to my students. Uh, but so I've broken it down into, into different areas of law on, the, on, the, on, on a rubric which says the relationship of a court to another legal institution, like the relationship of court to Congress. That's mostly done through interpreting statutes. Uh, to the executive branch, the bulk of it, mostly administrative law. To the states, that's mostly federalism. To other courts, etc. And one of the toughest areas is the one you just mentioned. Because what about the relationship between the court and the President of the United States, where the President is acting with really the full authority of Congress in areas that the Constitution really entrusts to them, and where the court knows little about it. And that, of course, is national security, and the war power, and uh, uh, the power of protecting uh, citizens against attack, national emergencies. Well, the court doesn't know much about that, and it is something. Uh, that is delegated to other branches of the government. But the court is there uh, in significant part to protect the individual when their human rights are invaded, when those basic listed rights there are. So what happens when those two things are in conflict? And how, how does the court deal with that? And, and, and I describe that in terms of well, keeping a, try, trying to keep some kind of leash what yeah. Justice O'Connor wrote in, in Guantanamo is <clears throat> you can't say that the Constitution writes the president a blank check. Mm-hmm. Now, now, why does she use that term? Well, because historically, I think the cases that were in people's mind when we come up to Guantanamo was the Japanese Korematsu, the internment in World War II, where 70,000 American citizens of Japanese origin were taken in the spring of 1942 and moved against their will to camps in the east of California and in the Intermountain region. Well, General DeWitt, who was, uh, who was the Sixth Army right here in the Presidio, I mean, he ordered that, and, and uh, uh, and there was a lot of support for that in California. People were frightened. I can remember blackout shades in World War II, and, and I can at least imagine how people were frightened of an invasion. 
And uh, he wrote, the general, he said, well, there's 793 instances of signaling to Japanese submarines, and there, there are several instances of sabotage, and we don't have time to go into this, just ship them off. And I can remember when I was cognizant of these kinds of things, my mother driving me, we were, the old Bayshore used to go down by, by uh, Tanforan Racetrack. And she said, that's where they held the Japanese in World War II, and the note of approval was not in her voice. And uh, how, how did that happen? Well, in 44, the case gets to the Supreme Court. And it's brought by Fred Korematsu. A lot of the families that were moved said, don't rock the boat. They said, don't, don't bring these, don't protest us, don't rock the boat. And, uh, but Korematsu, I, I met him once. I met him because my next door neighbor in Cambridge was the daughter of a man named Ernie Bezig, who used to be, some people remember that name, I hope, he was, used to be head of the ACLU in San Francisco. And he represented Korematsu in, uh, in uh, uh, 1944. And uh, lo and behold, he's at, uh, uh, at uh, Ann Forwanter's. It's at her house next door. So I go next door. There he is, Fred Korematsu. And he was a pretty feisty guy. I liked him very much. He was 80-something years old. Great. He wasn't going to let this go by. Mm-hmm. And he said, I'm challenging this, and I'm sure I'm going to win. Uh, well, to show you the mood at that time, the ACLU wouldn't represent him in San Francisco. They did come into the case later. But they told Bezig he's on his own. Uh, out here, anyway. But the case gets up to the Supreme Court in 1944. And uh, two lawyers in the Justice Department... Is it all right if I go into... It's very interesting. Yeah, so, all right. All right. The, two, the, the, the two lawyers, Annis <laughs> and Burley... I, I, I want to be held in contempt. Sorry, right, no, no. So. <laughs> the two lawyers start getting very suspicious of this story that DeWitt is, is telling. And so they call in the FCC and they say, were there 793 instances of signaling? And, and, and what about the sabotage? And two weeks later, the FCC comes back with a pile of papers like that and says, no, there was no signaling. Uh, all, we looked into that and it was all... Uh, uh, just buck privates who didn't know how to work the equipment and so forth. And, and uh, uh, they said, well, how did you do that so quickly? He said, we didn't do it now. This was done at the time. And it was presented to Dwight. You see, he knew it. And the same was true of the, uh, of the sabotage. And the person who was against this was J. Edgar Hoover. And he said, there's no need for this. And there they said, we're not signing this brief. And you've got to modify it. A very and and uh, uh, there was a huge argument in the Justice Department. Eventually modified by Herbert Wexler. You know who that was. And and he 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 got that somehow together. And they wrote a footnote nobody could understand. So so uh, and they signed the brief. It got to the Supreme Court. But if you read that footnote carefully, so I looked at the oral argument. And the oral argument in that case, Charlie Horsky, uh, who was representing the Japanese American Defense League, he says, read that footnote. He says, read it, and you'll see there's no basis whatsoever. You read the footnote carefully, and you read Murphy's opinion in dissent, and they knew it. I mean, the court knew it. And they were supposed to be, be, they were supposed to be applying strict scrutiny, so they should have known it just because the level of review was so, so stringent. Whatever, they but, knew it. Yeah. And so why? <laughs> the, who writes the opinion? Who writes the opinion? Justice Black. Black. Douglas. Frankfurter. All who are pretty good civil libertarians, and on the majority side, certainly in Brown, some time later. So the interesting question to me is, why did they do that? Particularly in the face of three dissents. And particularly, in my opinion, Murphy's, which I thought is a great dissent, yeah. really goes into this. 
Why? So this is just my personal view of it. I, I think they're thinking there. They're sitting there thinking, well, hmm, even if they're right in this case, there'll be others, and somebody has to run this war. And it's either us or Roosevelt, and we can't. So it has to be him. So we've got to approve it. That's what I think the reasoning is. And you see the power of that. There's some power to that reasoning. They don't say it, but I, I bet so the challenge in the Guantanamo cases mm-hmm. is how to avoid that. Because that's a very discredited case, and I think rightly discredited. Mm-hmm. How do we avoid it? So you read through those Guantanamo cases. Are they interesting? And that's why the blank check comes in. Because yeah. there are four cases, mm-hmm. the, each brought by a, a detainee or the equivalent. And in each time, they're not popular, those people. You know, I mean, uh, Ben Laden's driver is not the most popular person in America. (laughs) And uh, 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 they they, they are suing the president of the United States. They win. All four, they win. Now, you look at the grounds, and they're pretty narrow. Mm -hmm. The court says the habeas statute applies to Guantanamo as part of the United States. The dissent says, what it was, it was Afghanistan. And the majority says to that, nothing. Uh, the uh, the uh, detainee says, hey, I was picked up as, a, as a, uh, uh, an enemy combatant in Afghanistan, but I'm not. I'm a farmer. And the, the, I was just doing my farming work. And uh, the Defense Department says, why do you have a bazooka? And he says, well, yeah, you need a bazooka to be a farmer. In bed. Oh, but but, but uh, anyway, there's a disputed issue of mm-hmm. fact. And the court says, doesn't start going into what kind of evidence you have. It says you need a neutral decision maker and you have to have an opportunity to present proofs and arguments. Mm-hmm. And the dissent says, well, what kind of opportunity? And the dissent, the majority says nothing. Okay. So you, see, you see what's going on? Be careful. Don't go too far. I mean, the president does have this power, and there can be dangers. There can be dangers to the public, but, I mean, not too far. No, he can't go too far. And what's too far? Well, we'll tell you in this case. There are an awful lot of people don't like that approach. And there are some people who say, well, what you're doing is you're taking too much power from the president, he won't be able to protect you. And there are others, good civil libertarians, who say, why didn't you talk about the role of hearsay? And why didn't you do this? And why didn't you do that? And why, gee, you're just uh, deserting the ship here, or whatever you do. And, and uh, so, so you won't satisfy people with that. But read those cases with a background of Korematsu during a real war. And I think you'll get an idea of the challenge. And that's what mm-hmm. I want to communicate. I don't want to prove we're right. I can't say. I, I, you know, I was in the majority on those. Right. But I, I don't think I can prove we're right. And I, can't, I don't think others can prove we're wrong. And it's, it's really history that we'll say. And, uh, but I do want people to see the nature of the thinking. I want them to see the nature of the thinking because it, it casts light on the nature of the job. Uh, if not in that case, in other cases. Well, I think that needs to be the final word. Justice Breyer, thank you very much. For well, thank you. Wonderful thank, you. thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.